So, Paul, can I encourage you to come up? <laughs> and can I pray for you? Yeah, great. Thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Paul. Thank you for uh, the, the person he is. And Lord, I pray that as he speaks to us, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all that he'll have and share with us tonight. And bless him richly uh, with a strong voice and uh, your courage to bring uh, what you've laid on his heart. Mm. Amen. Amen. Great. Thanks, Marcus. Evening, everybody. Uh, do take the Bibles from the seat backs in front of you. And we're going to be looking at a passage in Matthew chapter 11, which I think is page 976, something like that. Um, I'm just really excited about the start of September. It's always one of my favorite months. Um, I think it's just because there's, there's a great sense of sort of regathering and starting again. And um, we still hopefully have some reasonably okay weather for a few weeks. So I kind of quite like September. And one of the things about September is it is this, it's a season of new opportunities. So a lot of you, if you've got connections to school-aged children um, or you work in education, you know, you'll probably be thinking really that the year runs September to September rather than January to January. And it's pretty much the same in the church as well. It's also when you've got, um, you know, you've had a sort of summer break, it's, it's often the kind of case that um, it's a season when there are natural changes anyway, even if you're not affected by the school calendar. A lot of people make changes in the, you know, over the months. Um, September is, is like the beginning of the time that comes after, after rest. So it just feels like it's a time when there's a lot of new possibilities around. Obviously, Marcus is getting ordained next week, so that's a new start for him. Um, New start for us, we've got some new interns that we'll introduce to you recently. I think three of them are here tonight already. Um, two more on the way, and then uh, some appointments to announce soon as well. People are joining the staff team and joining the church family. It's also a time when a lot of people... Um, I've noticed over the years that there are two seasons where people tend to make changes. And um, they'll either decide maybe a chapter has come to the end, so they, they'll go and start looking perhaps for a new church... Or maybe they'll be asking deeper questions about life, and if they haven't been a churchgoer before, they'll go, I need to go check that out. You know? So we always make sure in the church that we, we do series that are accessible and simple and right to the heart of the Christian faith in September and in January, because those are the two seasons when people often are looking for new things. It's also, though, the case when you come into a new season, it's not just about opportunities, but it's also about challenges as well. So a lot of us will perhaps be gearing ourselves back up to go to work. Maybe over August it's had a slightly different rhythm. As we come into the autumn, we've got to pick all that up again. And um, maybe you've got some challenges that lie ahead of you. Maybe the challenges that you've got ahead of you are personal, what's going on in your family. Or maybe they're common to all of us. What's, you know, we'll be constantly bombarded by the media to say, Oh, it's going to be awful this winter. You know, it's going to, you know, maybe you, you're a little bit anxious about the cost of living or about the situation in the world or about the state of the nation. You know, there are lots of reasons for people not just to feel opportunity but to feel challenge as we pick up and get into this new season. And so the reason I think it's so good to focus on Jesus is because Jesus is the answer to both of those questions. You know, as, as you're looking for something new, Jesus is the answer. As you're feeling a sense of need, Jesus is the source that meets every need. 
And so I want us to be focused on Jesus for the next couple of months. Not that we aren't normally, but I want to make sure that we're not doing anything obscure like a series on Leviticus or Revelation or something like that. Um, but I want, to look, I want us to look at Jesus. Um, some of you will, will know a little bit about my testimony if you've been here over the years. So I grew up in a church-going family, but probably a lot more of a traditional church, high church kind of background. Um, I've often jokingly said, although actually it is true, that for many years I would come into the church, I would turn left into a pew, kneel down, count to ten, and sit back up again. Because as far as I could tell, that's what everybody else was doing. It just never occurred to me as a young, as a young teenager that they were actually praying. Nobody had ever taught me to pray. I thought they were just you know, taking a pause for the cause and just settling in. And so I, I just did that. You, you copy what you see without really understanding it. And yet, um, through my church-going upbringing, um, I probably did receive quite a lot. So I think my worldview was formed. You know, I, I was brought up to believe that actually there is a God who is involved in the universe, he, he, who is present. Um, I think my moral framework was probably set. I, I had some sort of embedded sense of right and wrong, some sense that when we, when we sin that we need forgiveness. I had um, some, some awareness of the presence of God and the occasional encounter. Um, I remember many times over the years that um, you know, I'd get spoken to by particular talks. And um, it was often the curates. I think the curates in our church tended to be sort of young and on fire compared to the vicar. I'd make no comment about here. Um, but often what would happen is you'd get these people who were like really passionate and they'd come in and you'd have them for two or three years. And I can remember at the age of 12 or 13 complaining to my parents on a regular basis that somebody had spoken to the curate about me and had given him information about me, because he was clearly preaching about me in that talk. And there were a hundred of us there. It was, I realize now it wasn't the curate, it was the Holy Spirit through the curate that was, that was speaking to me. So I had that sense of being encountered by God. But for me, everything changed when I went to university, and I met other evangelical Christians who, who read the Bible, and I started to read the Bible with them. And suddenly my faith exploded. My faith came alive at that point. And I was just reflecting recently on what, what changed. Because I don't really think it was new information. I think what changed was the penny kind of dropped. And if I was going to sum it up, I would say it was like this. Faith became personal. And it's that big difference between it being kind of abstract, that this is the sort of thing that we need to believe, and it being personal. I suddenly realized who... God is, what Jesus had come to do to make God knowable and what he had done for me. Um, it's interesting, sometimes people who belong to, to some of those more traditional um, approaches to church struggle with the sort of worship that we've been engaging in tonight because they find it too personal. And there can be an accusation sometimes that, that our worship is, is too centered on us. And actually, when you... When you are in the presence of great worship as we were tonight. It's not. It's centered on Jesus, but it has to include us. And the great hymns of the church down through the centuries, not just the modern worship songs, but down through the centuries, when God has been moving in revival power, people write hymns that are very, very personal. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me? You know, my chains fell off. It's, it's always got to be 
personal. You cannot worship something in the abstract as well as you can worship something which is objective and real to you, where you know it was for me. And, of course, the Bible does exactly the same thing. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2 says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, you know, it's so personal. It's I, it's me. He, he, he's not talking about something that God did for Israel or something that God did for humanity. He knows that he is the focus of what God has done through Jesus. And so that's the heart of what we need to do. We, we really need to press into a sense of what God has done for you and for me. And I, I hope as we do that, that those of you who are Christians, it will take you deeper. That those who are seeking and not sure, it will introduce them to Jesus. And actually, that there will be many others that we can invite to come in and to hear just how amazing our God is and how he is the answer, the source for all that we need. What we're going to do essentially over the next couple of months is lean in to one of the biggest questions that we could ever ask. And we ask it in different ways. Sometimes we say, how would you explain God? Or how would you define God? Or how would you describe God? Because you've got people who believe in God, you've got people who don't believe in God. Even the people who believe in God can't agree. So who God really is, is really important. And of course, as soon as we ask that question, you know that we can't explain God because he's beyond understanding. We can't define God because that's what we were saying in the summer series as we looked through the life and ministry of Moses. And actually, we don't get to get, tell God who he is. He tells us who he is. He reveals his name to us. He takes the initiative. He, he is showing us who he is. It's all about revelation. We can't get to God through human reason. We can't work him out. We need him to take the initiative and show himself to us. So we can't explain him and we can't define him. But I do think that we can and must describe him. And that's part of our challenge. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's what the Psalms say. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. It is on us to proclaim the greatness of the Lord. Because of what he's done for us, we are to tell others about what he's done for us. So we, we actually have to, we have to try and describe God. But that's a bit difficult, isn't it? I mean, how do you describe God? And I think the heart of it all is this. You can at least say this. The most important and the most accurate thing you can ever say about God is that he's like Jesus. And again, if you've been around the church for a while, you might know that one of my favorite quotes is a quote from an old Church of England archbishop who lived just after the war. Um, he was an amazing man of God called Michael Ramsey, and he said this incredible statement. He said, God is Christ-like, and in him there is no un-Christ-likeness at all. Now, it's the other way around from what we normally think. Normally, we would say, Jesus is just like God. Jesus is the perfect reflection of the Father. And he took that and he said, yeah, but if Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the same, they're indivisible. And you can flip that statement and you can say something just as powerful. God is just like Jesus. God is Christ-like. And in God, there is no un-Christ-likeness at all. And I think that's really important because so often we get God wrong. 
In our heart of hearts, we have images of God that aren't true. And we need his revelation in Jesus. Knowledge of a person isn't just knowledge about them, about the facts. Knowledge of a person is knowledge of their character, a glimpse of their thoughts and intentions. Um, and that's really important because um, we, we tend to make assumptions about people very quickly. You'll all be familiar with the concepts of first impressions, right? That's why I think very carefully, clearly, about what I wear every evening. <coughs> no, no, I'm not very good at that. I do think occasionally, is my hair sticking up or something like that? Um, but you'll know, make first impressions. If you're going off to an interview, you'll probably think about, what am I going to wear? I want to make a good first impression. How quickly do you think a first impression is formed? That's an interesting question. Though. I thought, it's probably fairly fast, isn't it? I thought, I'll look it up. You know what the answer is? Research says you form a first impression in one-tenth of a second. Because as soon as you see someone, as your brain registers someone, you look at their face, you look at their height, you look at their gender, you look at their clothing, and the visual image that you get in one-tenth of a second is very powerfully correlated to how you will assess you think somebody is probably like, even if you looked at them for 30 or 40 seconds afterwards. In other words, you decide incredibly quickly what somebody looks like. And the, the research says that by, certainly by seven seconds, you already have a very formed image in your mind of what this person is likely to be like, how you would expect them to behave, how ultimately you would expect them to treat you and it's because what we do is we go from a few visual cues and then based on our experience of people that they remind us of or stereotypes that we have to do with their gender or ethnicity or clothing, prejudices that we might have, based on some visual clues, we then project very quickly onto that person who we think they are and how we think they'll be. I just want to say I have a horrible feeling we do exactly the same with God. And unless we are in an ever-deepening knowledge of God through Jesus, we're never really going to be able to understand who God is. And we will project things onto God that are probably not true of him. Now, just for example, even as a Christian, so as a Christian, you could say, well, God is high and he is holy. And because of that, a lot of Christians will go, well, he's high and therefore he's a long way away. You know, he's high, and therefore he's above us. He's not really the sort of God who, who engages, because he's high and exalted. And also, he's holy, which means that he, I mean, he loves us because he loves us, because he has to. But he probably, he probably struggles to be with us. He's probably slightly offended by us, you know, as he sees the mess of our lives. He, he, he probably doesn't want to be near with us. He's just driven by his love to be near with us, you know, to be near, near us and, and with us. And only Jesus kind of makes it okay. You know, so many people have an image of the angry, judgmental father who needs to be placated by the loving son, but actually neither of them really, you know, neither of them really enjoy hanging around with us. That's so easy to do. And even if Christians know theologically in their brains that that's not the case, that kind of projection onto the face of God of those misunderstandings happens all the time. And that's why when we feel sin, we, we're ashamed and we can't even bring it to God. 
Or when we're broken and weak, we think, God wouldn't be interested in me. Or, you know, a thousand expressions of things that reveal we really don't understand who God is. So my hope is that over the next couple of months, we will get to know him better through looking at Jesus. But how, do you, how could you encapsulate Jesus? Well, how could you sum Jesus up? You, 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 could, you could say, well, we tend to approach him through what he's done. We, we look at what he said in the Gospels, what he did, how he treated people. Ultimately, we look at the cross. And I just read that phrase from Paul in Galatians 2. You know, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So yes, look at the cross and you'll see how God feels about you. But the point of that is that Jesus did that for you and for me personally. And I think I just want to point out when Paul says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, that first phrase is really important. He didn't just say the Son of God who gave himself for me, like I know Jesus did a great thing for me, but he he knows why Jesus did a great thing for him. Jesus gave himself on the cross for the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul knew that Jesus loved him. And that's the same for you and for me. It is for us to be able to say, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yet we need, if we're really going to understand Jesus, we need to get a glimpse of his heart. You probably know somebody best and understand them best when you know their intentions and their motivations. We get a glimpse of their heart. That's how you'll be able to predict how they're going to treat you. So, finally, to the Bible. We're going to be looking today, just very briefly, to start this series at this passage in Matthew 11. Now, I've talked about the love of Jesus. I'm going to start Matthew 11 at verse 20, which is going to be a bit of a shock to the system, because it says this, Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And to you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you were performed in Sidon, it would have remained to this day, at Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on that day of judgment than for you. And at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wow. Wow. Now, why start here? Well, the reason is that in the, in the Bible, there are four Gospels. In the four Gospels, there are 89 chapters. In the 89 chapters, there is only one time where Jesus gives a self-description. There are lots of times when Jesus talks about his, 
his functions or his titles, you know, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, but there's only one time when Jesus says, I am like this, and it's here. Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Now, again, let's not jump to assumptions, because there are some Christians who would probably, they just like to read the nice bits of the Bible, and they go, oh, read that bit, that's lovely, I like that promise, and then they project it onto the face of God and probably get him all wrong again. So the reason I, I have you know, read you the longer version of the passage is because it's a bit challenging. Did you feel a little bit of a contrast between the first bit, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, all you unrepentant cities, day of judgment, and then the next bit about come to me, you're weary, you're heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The point is there are not two sides to God as if he's schizophrenic, but the point is if you really want to know God, you have to do justice to who God is in his totality. And the best way I think of holding these two together is actually to look one verse earlier than where I started. It's in verse 19. Jesus is talking about the way that they rejected John the Baptist because he was ascetic, and they're going to reject Jesus because he spent time partying with the sinners and the tax collectors. And Jesus says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And that's the point. Jesus is a friend of those who've messed up and they've messed up their life and they know their need. If you're weary, if you're heavy laden, Jesus is your friend. It's not so easy to say that Jesus is a friend of the proud, the arrogant, the, the unrepentant. In fact, without coming to Jesus, you're in trouble. Um, and in fact, you know, as a Christian, we need to really do justice to to what the Bible says. Now, I, I do believe once you're saved, you're saved, but I do also have to do justice to some of the things the Bible says, like Hebrews chapter 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. What does that mean? It, does that mean that somehow you're not included if you deliberately go, yeah, Jesus will forgive me so I can do what the hell I like? Or Hebrews chapter 6. It's impossible for those who've once been enlightened and have fallen away to be brought back to repentance because if they do, they'll be crucifying the Son of God all over again. Now, I don't know what those things mean, but I do know this. It's not so easy to say that Jesus is a friend of the Pharisee and the proud, self-righteous person that thinks everything's right. That's why he says in this passage that God has hidden things from the learned and the wise, but he's revealed them to people that are willing to be like little children. Point is that God is a God of justice, and actually that's good news, because God is holy, and you want him to be holy. You, you want God to be a God who is offended by sin. You want God to be a God who is opposed to evil, because if he isn't, there's no justice in the world. The only challenge is that when we have a God who is offended by sin and is opposed to evil, then we're on the wrong side of that equation too often. And the great news of the gospel is that although God is like that because we need justice in the world, the only thing that is greater than his holiness is his love for us. And so he comes in Jesus. But we need to know our need and we need to receive what Jesus comes to do. He is gentle and he is humble to those who can acknowledge their need and who are aware of their sin. And um, just to unpack those two words, gentle and humble. Gentle means tender, 
long-suffering. It it doesn't mean that he's not capable of being angry. There are times when we see Jesus offended by the things that were wrong in the world. What it means is he's not trigger-happy, he's not harsh, he's not volatile, he's not out of control. He's gentle. And humble in heart, well, the old translation of that was lowly. And in fact, um, the titles for these talks that we've taken over the next couple of months are taken from a book called Gentle and Lowly. If you want to read anything great, it's a brilliant book to read. Um, But again, lowly is probably not very helpful for us because we think lowly means sort of like just like the lowest of the low, you know. Uh, And you might sort of say, well, if, if Jesus is like that, then, well, it means he's not exalted. You know, so often what we do is we go, Jesus is like the down-to-earth God, therefore he's my friend, he's my mate, I can treat, and we forget that he is the one that we're going to cast our crowns before and worship in eternity. He's also, he's high and he's lifted up. Humble in heart is perhaps a slightly better translation for a modern ear. What it basically means, this word basically means not someone who insists on position, not someone who demands respect. The, The essence of what we're saying here is that he is accessible He is available to us when we know our need. He's not ashamed to be with us. So you want a glimpse into the heart of God. The only time that Jesus ever describes himself in his own inner personality and workings, he says this, I am tender and I am accessible. I am available for you. That is an amazing glimpse of God. Now just in this particular passage tonight as we close, the offer from Jesus is that we might experience rest. Um, I have to confess I have a slightly complicated relationship with rest. Um, I'm very busy. Um, I quite love to be busy. I love what I do. Um, I'm an activist by nature. I'm an extrovert who demands stimulation. So even on a day off, if it's like a day off with nothing, I'm so bored. Becky will tell you that um, I can be restless when I'm meant to be resting. But Jesus is not talking about inaction. He's not necessarily even just talking about rest for our bodies as well. Um, We have just got back from a lovely time away seeing Becky's family in the States. Uh, So people have come up and said, did you have a good rest? And the answer to that question is, yes, we had a good rest. But some people have expressed it, are you rested? And the answer is, no, I'm knackered. I'm jet lagged out of my brain. Um, I I have a bad reaction to jet lag, probably because my brain doesn't ever stop. Um, So at the moment, I'm regularly awake from 2 to 5, and then I fall asleep at 5, and then when the alarm goes off at 7 or something, it's like, ugh. So it kind of hits me. So am I rested? Mm, Not so sure. At least not in my body. But the rest that Jesus is talking about does include rest of your body, but he's primarily, he says, rest for your soul. It's that ability to live at peace with yourself and with God and with your circumstances. It's the ability to live without anxiety, without fear, Jesus is saying, come and find rest. He's not saying, come and embrace inaction. You don't have to do anything. In fact, he invites us to take onto ourselves a yoke. That's working, isn't it? The imagery that Jesus is using is is taken from an agricultural metaphor. They'd all have been familiar with it. A yoke, where you yoke two oxen together, they pull a plow. What they used to do is they would train a young ox, otherwise wouldn't know what it's doing, would try and pull in all directions. They would stick it alongside an older ox that would probably carry most of the weight. 
And that older ox would just go in a straight line and the young ox would just learn to plod along next to them, gradually taking on more of their share. And that was a very common image. They'd see it in the fields all the time. And it was so common that the Pharisees, the wise and the learned people that were arrogant and thought they had nothing to do in terms of to get right with God, the Pharisees used to use that image a lot. They used to say, take onto yourself the yoke of religion if you want to be right with God. And Jesus is really offending them. We probably don't recognize the background. We don't realize how controversial what Jesus is saying is right here. But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. If you want to make your approach to God through religion, good luck. It's not going to work. If you want to take on the law, even the God-given law, it's not going to help. You'll just find it heavy. Take my yoke upon you. Walk with me. Work with me. And then he makes this kind of crazy promise. He says, my yoke is easy. That was it's, it's it's well-fitting, it's not going to chafe, it's the one that's perfectly shaped for you and designed for you. It's kind, gentle. My burden is light. He's kind of saying my yoke is not really a yoke and my burden's not really a burden. I, I want you to come and work with me, but I, I want to do most of the work. I just want you to join in a bit. That's what he's saying here. He says that will give you rest for your souls. So putting this all together, basically what, what we're seeing as the the first insight into the heart of God is that the high and holy God doesn't cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and broken, fallible sufferers. And that's what we see in the things that Jesus did. But more importantly, that's what we see as a revelation of the heart of Jesus. And what I want us to do over the next couple of months is to press into understanding the heart of Jesus for us. The heart of Jesus is that when he sees us struggling, whether it's because of our sin or whether we've sinned or not because of our frailty, when he sees us struggling, he cannot bear to stay clear of us. He has to run to us. He has to embrace us. And that means that when we look at the cross, the cross wasn't an anomaly. It wasn't an exception. It wasn't this kind of like great gesture that Jesus did at the end of his life. The cross was a perfectly logical, natural extension of how Jesus lived every moment of his human life and ministry. The cross was an expression of how he loved us. And because Jesus is the same, it's not a revelation of who he was back then. It's a revelation of who he is right now. And if the cross was today, and if you were the only person, he would still do it. That's who he is. That's what he wants us to understand, and that's the revelation of God that he wants us to live in. So why don't, we, why don't we get excited about knowing him better and pressing into him and maybe cast off some of those idols we were singing about earlier where we've projected onto the face of God something that really isn't quite true about who he is, that leaves us a bit insecure because those who really know God are never going to be shaken got a foundation, got a confidence, got a hope. Why don't we stand? Band, if you'd like to come back. We've had a packed program tonight, um, but we're going to spend some time just enjoying the presence of God, but also coming into the presence of God. So as we stand, I just invite you, remember this is all about what is personal. It's so great to come together, sing corporately, to, you know, to be part of a family. But at the end of the day,
God invites us into a personal relationship. It's about you and him. It's about what he's saying to you tonight, what he wants to give you, about you knowing what it is you want to give him. And hearing his invitation to us. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence amongst us tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to be reminded through our worship, through our communion, through our word, how you feel about us. And we just want to hear again the words that scripture bring tonight. Jesus says, come, all who are weary and burdened. Do you need, do you need to acknowledge that tonight and come to him? Jesus says, take upon me a yoke, my yoke. Take upon you my yoke. And that means learning to walk with him. Do we need to surrender to that again? Jesus says, learn from me. But above everything else tonight, I think the, the key is Jesus says, the reason for all of this is how I feel about you. How I am in my heart. I am gentle and humble in heart. And I want to give you rest for your souls. And so we're going to go into a time of worship. But I'd like to invite people who want that fresh revelation. It might be that you have a very specific need you're aware of as we're coming into this autumn term. You don't even need to tell somebody, but you, you're coming to God to present it to him and say, I need to know you're with me and for me. It might be you realize that you've got a false image of God or you just need to know him better than you do at the moment. It might be that you want to take on that yoke of discipline. Perhaps you've been a bit slack in your discipleship and you're saying, Jesus, here I am. I want, I want to walk with you. I want to work with you. If you'd like to respond to prayer tonight, can I ask you just to kind of start making your way to the front now? We're going to pray with each other. I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over you, and then as we worship, people will come up alongside you and bless you. Okay, so if you'd like to come, we're going to pray.